0: You're listening to the Everyday Airbills Podcast, episode 5. Hey everybody, thank you so much for joining me today for episode number 5. I don't know about you guys, but it seems like everyone I know is pregnant right now. And maybe you're one of them. Maybe you're pregnant or maybe you're thinking about having a baby in the near future. Well, if that's you, I'm so happy that you found this episode because today I'm talking with Mary Bove, who's going to share with us, among other things, how to use herbs to prepare for a healthy pregnancy, deal with morning sickness, and herbs to use postpartum. Mary is a natural doctor, a midwife, and an herbalist. And she's also the author of The Encyclopedia of Natural Healing for Children and Infants and co-author of Herbs for Women's Health. She also works as an educator and formulator for Gaia Herbs, and I'm so excited to have her on my show today. Hi, Mary, and thank you so much for being here today. Um, First, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you down the path of herbalism?
1: Yes, thank you for having me. Um, I started being interested in herbs and herbal medicine back when I was just... Uh, a college student back in the early 1970s, mid-1970s. And I pursued it uh, with great passion, found a woman in uh, Vancouver, uh, Alert Bay, Vancouver Island, BC, who I was able to start my studies with. In 1978, I opened a herb shop in Portland, Maine, Hippocrates Herbarium. That was well before its time. Uh, I moved from there to doing herb farm and retail herb reese and uh, kind of uh, whatever I could do. And then that brought me to going over to England and studying at the National Institute of Medical Herbalists and becoming a medical herbalist uh, after four years of study there, which then brought me back to the United States and needing a license or some way to practice herbal medicine. I found my way to Bastyr University and started my naturopathic degree. Uh, That took a couple of years and in that time discovered midwifery which just lit up my heart because I had had home births with my babies in England. And um, so hence I finished my midwifery degree in 1990 along with my naturopathic degree and started practicing lickety-split. Worked at the birth center in uh, Seattle area and then came east in 1993.
0: Awesome. So today we're going to talk about herbs for pregnancy. Are there any herbs that you recommend women to take to prepare?
1: Uh-huh. So those would be like either, you know, herbs that might be like what we would call pro-fertility in the sense that maybe that they, they want to just reinforce their ovarian cycle or their fertility herbs. Um, maybe they want to, you know, improve the tone of their uterine cavity or their membranes that line that. So they may take herbs that would be what we call tonics. And those things are things like uh, repins, uh which we might also call partridge berry um also something like viburnum opulus or cramp bark uh, is excellent tonic for that area. Some women have issues where they have poor circulation and maybe they need to have some support to their circulation or uh, one of the biggest things that I think women need support with is often stress modulation because stress takes away from good fertility and fertility ovarian cycles. So to me many times that's a time in which you can help a woman by using adaptogen herbs and nervine herbs to help um, modulate and diminish some of that stress so they can get a, you know, a more optimal ovarian cycle for uh, pregnancy.
0: And how far in advance should women be taking these?
1: So how far ahead might depend on, you know, if they have uh, a couple of months and they know they're going to plan a pregnancy, you know, come say the new year, or come say the summer, that I would definitely say if they have three months, that's an optimal time to do some of that kind of work. Uh, women who have trouble, you know, or specific issue, maybe they're going to need a little bit longer. But you can do herbal tonification teas. You can do them in tea form, or you can do them in tincture form, um, or tablet form. They do- and they don't necessarily have to be done uh, what we would say, you know, every single day. That many times those practices can be done several times in a week and combined with good nutritional practices. Are there any herbs we can take to help with nutrition? Well, herbs do provide nutritional aspects. Um, many times they'll provide me- multiple types of what we call phytochemicals. Um, but many times we have to eat those, them in the sense that as a food and digest them. That uh, extraction such as water or alcohol doesn't always take like all the vitamins and minerals out. But one of the things that I think about with herbs is that herbs help our body use more of those raw materials. So if we're eating good food and, um, and we're using herbal medicines to help to support our digestion or, you know, overall metabolism, they can actually help us utilize our food better.
0: Okay, so something like nourishing infusions, would those be good to take?
1: yes nourishing infusions things like you know um a traditional one might be something like horsetail with alfalfa and um you know uh nettles that help to support minerals in that sense or using something like dandelion root that can help as a bitter to help to support digestive function which is going to help overall health and those are the kinds of things tonifiers and and uh adaptogens that help to improve the the health of the overall body. And one of the things that I think is important is is that a healthy body is able to get pregnant Um, and I think and help and keep a pregnant and grow a, a pregnancy. And so if a woman does have the opportunity to plan ahead, and to utilize, you know, herbal medicines and good nutrition and nutritional supplements if needed, um, she, it will help, you know, throughout the pregnancy, even in the sense of not having other types of complaints or an easier time or, or you know, being able to be more mobile during the pregnancy.
0: Anne, can you talk to us a little bit about what causes gestational diabetes?
1: well when a woman becomes pregnant her physiology changes and it changes in at variety of different times during the pregnancy and different aspects and so the you know the whole piece of being pregnant just the simple act of that on your physiology creates more strain on the pancreas and the kidneys and to regulate so it's a one time Really, where a woman, you're going to see a weak link in her metabolism. You might not see that again until she's 55 and she gets metabolic syndrome. I always thought, looked at it, here's your little window, your your crystal ball that tells you when you're a middle-aged woman, you're going to have metabolic syndrome. So if you have gestational diabetes, you need to fix it now. And you can fix it. You know, so that's a that's like a, a tendency. That's a and they now know that gestational diabetes and metabolic syndrome, those things are set in our fabric of our health back in pre gestational time. And they actually now know that what the woman does in her prefer fertile and her first few trimesters makes all the difference on whether that baby's gonna have diabetes type two.
0: And is there anything women can do who are having trouble conceiving?
1: Oh, yes. There's lots of things. And there's um, it's interesting because um, I was just working on a lecture yesterday and talking to someone this morning about this issue. And that many times when we're having trouble conceiving, we can look at it from a couple of different aspects. One, as I said, stress can interrupt our hormonal aspect. Another aspect of that is when our hormones are disrupted, a lot of times stress um, can pull away Uh, from our progesterone, and so that then will impact our second half of our cycle, or our our ovarian cycle, called the luteal phase. So it creates a dynamic called luteal phase deficiency. And because of that, we don't have adequate uh, progesterone uh, to be able to create a healthy endometrium that can allow implantation and support for early pregnancy. So that's one of the things that herbal medicine can address very nicely with something like Vitex, Um, um, chase tree berry, that is an excellent plant to help to change the dynamic of that and to improve fertility. Um, uh, Often I like to use that in combination with two adaptogens. One is holy basil and the other is rhodiola, both traditional herbs used for fertility that help to build, build the fabric and help to modulate and good endocrine function. And that means not just ovaries, but you know, thyroid, adrenal, pituitary, and pancreas.
0: Okay, so if you're taking these herbs to prepare for pregnancy, can you continue to take them once you're pregnant?
1: Well, here's the thing that I often <clears throat> talk to my women about is, is that why would we need to continue them once you are pregnant. So if the goal is to get pregnant, then it may be that they then serve that purpose. And to just take plants for the purpose of taking them or because you heard it was good isn't always necessarily the best way to go about it. But because they are traditionally fertility herbs and can be used um, in pregnancy, if a woman is taking those to try to get pregnant and she becomes pregnant and doesn't know that for several weeks, these herbs are not going to be risky. Um, But generally, if there's no reason to take them once she's accomplished her successful pregnancy, then we would cease them. There are plants and herbs that people do take during pregnancy to help as a tonifier and tonic of the pregnancy. And those are what we call preparatory herbs. um, And they're often taken from the second trimester on. So usually from about 14 to 16 weeks is when I would recommend it. And the one that's most popularly known is raspberry leaf. Um, You know, raspberry leaf has always been the most traditional. You can use some of the other berry leaves such as strawberry leaf or blackberry leaf. Uh, You can also use something like uh, partridge berry, which I mentioned earlier, known as michella repens. Um, and, And then there were some more non-traditional or they've kind of lost favor and one of those would be um, a familiar plant is peach leaves. But as I get they there's not, you know, it's a much more outdated.
0: Yeah, I haven't heard of that one before.
1: Yeah, but raspberry leaf really has done, does a wonderful job. It really helps support many dynamics of good uterine and endometrial and muscle health uh, for a woman. And so it, it um, you know, I typically recommend women to consider using it as a tea because it's a very tea-friendly herb and it's a great way to deliver more fluid during pregnancy and it also has other benefits in assisting digestion.
0: Are there herbs that are not safe to take during pregnancy?
1: There are um, and there are specific herbs or there are groups of herbs. And One of the things that I think is very important is is that um, when we 're avoiding herbs in pregnancy, that there are some herbs that might be all right to be used in the third trimester of a pregnancy, but not in the first trimester. The first trimester is the most delicate, and so hence that would be a time in which we really don 't really want to be using you know much of anything. I used to tell my women you know use food, good water, exercise, sunshine, laughter, you know, and if we need herbs, we will use them, but if we 're looking for them for. Pregnancy support, we're going to wait till the second trimester. And generally, herbs that are high in alkaloids, uh, essential oils, not essential oil plants in the sense that if someone's having basil, which is an essential oil plant, they can use that for a culinary herb or for pesto. But to take it as a medicinal tincture or as an essential oil may not be the best thing in the first trimester. And then any of the herbs that stimulate the uterus, and those would be called emmenagogues or uterine stimulants. Um, and many of those, um, which things like golden seal, um, or ephedra, or many of the um, cohoshes, those are all herbs that would be avoided. Uh, during pregnancy, I think also harsh laxatives, particularly in the first trimester, should be avoided. So those harsh laxative herbs that might be consider- considered purgatives um, might also be something that somebody wants to watch out for. In general, I think you know um, using herbs as beverage or in culinary aspects, as far as putting oregano, you know, in your spaghetti sauce or using pesto on your pasta absolutely fine. What
0: about nausea or upset stomach? What could you do for that?
1: Oh, excellent. Yes. Uh, ginger, of course, has been probably the most researched and it has been researched for its effects uh, a- as an anti-nausea. And it's actually been looked at in some um, retrospective studies with pregnant women using it for um, hyperemesis gravita or nausea and vomiting of pregnancy. I think that that's a, a great one for people to use. Also using teas, In small amounts, such as using anise seed or fennel seed um, or a little bit of spearmint, a little bit of chamomile flowers, those types of things in uh, teas or in small, you know, um, doses can work very nicely. Sometimes a woman doesn't want to drink a large amount of tea for for nausea because of the weight of the tea in her tummy. So at that point, she could use, um, as I said, teaspoon doses or like taking uh, any seed and chewing a small amount of any seed in your mouth and allowing the seed uh, and oil of the seed to enter your digestion that way.
0: Is there anything you can do to avoid morning sickness in the first place? I've heard like eating protein first thing in the morning. Does that work?
1: There are a number of different Things And it really depends on the woman and in the sense that I never found one thing to work for every woman. Um, many times eating um, protein can be useful. Some women found vitamin B12 shots to be very useful or using a, a sublingual vitamin B. Uh, Some women found having salt water in the morning was very useful or using, as I said, ginger tea on a regular basis. Um, And so it can really be variable in that sense. And I think it can even change throughout the few weeks that a woman is dealing with having those symptoms in early pregnancy.
0: And what about for migraines? Is there anything you can do for that?
1: Ah, I would certainly say that if I had a woman who had a migraine headache and she was pregnant, I would be using the nutritional supplement magnesium because that's very helpful in helping to deal with migraines at the time of migraines and a lot of the inflammation that goes on. And you could combine that with viburnum opulus or cramp bark because that's a smooth muscle and skeletal muscle relaxer. So it will help to relax the muscles around the head, and the neck area, and it will also help to relax the vasculature um, of the blood vessels that can also be contributing to a migraine headache.
0: And is there anything that you can take for moodiness?
1: Uh Uh-huh. Well, certainly I think, you know, if you're in your second or third trimester, you could use some lemon balm tea, which would be very useful. You could also use holy basil. Uh, which is a very uplifting plant, and that is also a fertility plant, and it's also what we call a galactagogue, so it supports lactation. And then um, you could also use, you know, essential oils in an aromatic form in the sense of atomizing them in the air. And lastly, if it was that you had anxiety, then you could use some chamomile for the anxiety.
0: And... What about if you've reached your due date and the baby still hasn't come yet? Is there anything you can do to induce labor or help that process along?
1: Yes, there are. Um, Many midwives use a variety of different herbs to help to induce labor, um, and it would depend on what's going on in the sense that if a woman gets to her due date and her cervix is not ripe and ready, then you don't really want to induce with just contractions because you've got a long, fat cervix that's not going to open up. So you would have to use herbs that thin the cervix, that make it Uh, what we call a face, soften it. Um, And there are specific herbs, but they really should be done, you know, with a midwife's care uh, or a midwife herbalist's care. And then if a woman had a soft cervix that was already thinned and then she just needed to assist her contractions, um, again, there are plants that can do that. So many people use black cohosh to soften the cervix and um, relax it with things like lobelia. Other people for getting contractions going use things like blue cohosh or use things like um, mistletoe or um, what we would call, I'm trying to think of a common name for it, um, nard root. There are a number of different ones in that sense. Typically what I would tell a woman who wasn't necessarily under midwifery care or was looking for a safe way to come to that, she might consider what we call Uh, mother's cordial. And mother's cordial is a traditional partist preparatory to prepare the cervix for labor and delivery. And one usually starts taking it two to three weeks before their due date. If a woman gets to a due date, she can take it then at that time. And it helps all of those aspects that we talked about. And that's a combination of uh, several different herbs. Uh, And I know that herbalist and alchemist uh, out in New Jersey, carries a wonderful mother's cordial.
0: What about if a woman's having a natural birth, are there things you can do to ease the pain?
1: Yes. So, you know, certainly I think water, hot water and the bath using warm, you know, um compresses are on the bottom of the belly is very useful many women find that the scent of lavender and smelling lavender or having it in the bathwater helps very much with discomfort many women report that lavender is very useful for perineal pain uh, and discomfort both pre and post delivery Um, and then if one's trying to um, Diminish or take some of the edge off the pain. Sometimes some women use things like passion flower or um, California poppy uh, to help to soothe the pain during their their uh, labor. But generally, you know, um, unless the contractions are not being constructive. Um, then when you have lots of contractions but you're not getting anywhere, a lot of times there's a tension in the uterus and instead of and it creates a lot of pain and usually those people need a uterine relaxant like the cramp bark or viburnum opulus which helps very much to relax the tension and allow the contractions to then actually do work.
0: And are there some other things we can do that aren't necessarily herbal?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, again, it depends on the woman. Um, Some women do really well with acupuncture or acupressure that, um, you know, there are yoga positions or birth positions that can help. There are homeopathic remedies that can be used to help um, as well. So, you know, for me, I always would, you know, start with one and move through the list based on how the person was responding. Part of the issue is is that pain is manageable when somebody you know has the ability and the skills to cope with it and i think that you know many home birthers you know have skills because they've been working with one a birth attendant for nine months and they created a relationship and they created tools and they're, they're in their natural environment and those things are extremely helpful. Um, I've also been at births where the woman is really comfortable being at home but the uh, partner isn't and because of that discomfort it creates an issue with the woman and you know we end up not being able to work at home. I think with the hospital, I think sometimes what the aspect is is that, you know, there are multiple caregivers. Many times there are different shifts for a woman. She doesn't necessarily... Always have one person who's consistent, you know, hospital births who uh, incorporate doulas into their birthing find that they have better outcomes because the doula provides consistency. And so having, you know, tools and skills are, are extremely important. And I think even just the psychological piece of recognizing that the pain of childbirth ends. It's you know, it's defined in the sense that you have a contraction, it lasts for three minutes and it's done. And then in that next two to three minutes, you have no pain. And then it comes again. So you can actually pace yourself. You can work with that. You can, you know, kind of ride that out. And if you have a good support team and you have a good, you know, process in your own self of being able to work at that degree, you can really manage um, the pain that the pain doesn't necessarily become the highlighted issue.
0: Mm. Is there anything that you can take after birth to avoid a hemorrhage?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think that you know some of the, what we want here after birth is we want the uterus to pull back and to and to what we call you know involute. So what we want is we can use something as simple as going back to the raspberry leaf tea or using the mother's cordial at that point, or using something like cinnamon tea, which can be very useful to help to minimize uh, the bleeding. Um, Sometimes some people will do other types of what we would call uterine tonics, like nettles, and um, again, um, raspberry leaf, uh, that kind of plant to to help to, you know, um, again, bring that down. for, for If there is bleeding, uh, sim- simply using Angelica Archangelica, which is a really nice flavored culinary tea, can be useful in helping to modulate that with the cinnamon. And what about tea for lactation? Yes, there are many, many galactagogues out there. Those are herbs that help to support both milk production and secretion. Um, We might think of nettles as a very popular one. Probably the most popular one is fenugreek seed. And fenugreek seed works from a couple of different aspects. And typically, you'll see fenugreek seed effects within 72 hours of starting that. So using it as a tea or a tincture, um, a woman can gauge by knowing that she should see a change in her milk within that set first 72 hours. We also use goat's rue, um, or what we know as galiga, um, as a traditional galactagogue. And then things like dill seed, fennel seed, any seed, they all fit into that group as well. Some less known ones, I mentioned earlier, holy basil um, is an excellent galactagogue as well as things like red clover um, and um, milk thistle seed. And
0: Which herbs are safe to use with babies?
1: There are a number of herbs that are good for bathing the baby. The one that comes to mind right away is calendula flowers. So calendula flowers are very you know, soothing to the skin. They help with you know improving skin health overall, or if there's any kind of a rash, and that's a very easy um, aspect. And you can get calendula cream, which is excellent for fungus or candida that can be contributing to diaper rash. Using herbal baths can be an excellent way with babies, or using a rinse. Um, using lavender flowers can also be excellent for diaper rash or um, any kinds of microbial. Uh, skin rashes that occur for them.
0: Is it safe to use essential oils on babies?
1: I would not be using essential oils directly on babies. They have really sensitive skin, and many essential oils have types of constituents in them that can be irritating to the skin, particularly like lemon-based oils or um, and poor-grade oils. So you know. I think there, they have to be cut with a fatty oil that protects the skin. So, you know, if you're getting a baby oil that's, you know, avocado and almond oil and has a little essential oils in it, that's one thing. But directly onto the skin, I wouldn't suggest that.
0: Would diffusing the oils be okay?
1: Yes, you could diffuse it. I wouldn't put it right next to where the baby is. And I would certainly not put it right under their nose because it can actually collapse their respiratory tubes, so... Um, But if you do have it in your room, you know, say it's in one corner and you're with the baby in another corner, that's fine. But you don't want to, you know, dab it under the nose or put it right, you know, pointing right into their little crib.
0: Yeah. What can we do to make sure that the baby grows up with a healthy immune system?
1: Ah. I think that that's a really great question, and bat, you know we should step back to that preconception moment because a lot of what happens in preconception has a lot to do with immune health. And so, for that preconception time, we talked about herbs. I would also suggest making sure that the woman does a good probiotic, and using a good probiotic helps to establish a healthier microbiome, and a healthy microbiome in utero and in the first three months of life makes a huge, huge, huge difference in immune health for a human being. So to me, I think that, you know, getting good nutrition through pregnancy, getting good foods, having, you know, adequate amounts of the building blocks we need for building good human tissue is extremely important. And then when a child is born to support them with probiotics, you know, to support them with good exposure to good nutrients, particularly things like flavonoids, um, you know, many of the bioflavonoids that we find in fruits and vegetables are extremely important in helping our immune system. As are proteins and omega oils, they're all used as building blocks. And so they're very, very important in the first several years of life. And I would also say that touch, Uh, and love and interaction, eye contact um, and being exposed to the natural world all also improve immunity overall. Kids who grow up around animals tend to have stronger immune systems overall.
0: So would you take the probiotics throughout the entire pregnancy then?
1: Yes, I often encourage my women to do that.
0: And what other supplements would you recommend?
1: Um, Generally, you know, once looking at a woman's diet, You know, you might suggest certain things like particularly in the northeast and it was the winter, they might need extra vitamin D. Using a prenatal vitamin was always a good insurance. Um, Making sure there was adequate folic acid, you know, by using a prenatal vitamin and or. Um, was one thing t- that I looked at. But I also felt like magnesium was very important and zinc. And women who get a lot of stretch marks typically don't get enough zinc in their diet. So, And zinc is an important piece of um, establishing good immunity for the baby. So that would be another. And that's why prenatal vitamin can often assure that there's minimum values of that. But along with that, having good essential fatty acids and making sure that they have a high amount of plants in a, you know their diet so that their their diet was definitely including 6 to 9 fruits and vegetables each day because plant based food makes a huge difference in outcomes of health. What can you do for a colicky baby? Well, for a colicky baby, certainly you want to figure out why you're having colic. Um, many babies get, go through a little colicky period uh, early in their life, somewhere between three and five weeks, but there are babies that then continue to have colic and have issues with that and looking to make sure that it's not something that the mother's eating if they're a breastfeeding mom um, would be important, dairy being a, a big contributing, wheat can be a contributor, soy can be a contributor, bananas can be a contributor, um, all that can agitate that. Um, And then what can you do for the baby? Probiotics would certainly be high on the list. Using uh, small amounts of herbal tea or herbal drops that consist of fennel and chamomile um, can be useful. Sometimes using California poppy for pain, if there's a lot of pain.
0: And how long do you recommend that women breastfeed for?
1: I recommend that moms breastfeed, you know, for a year. Um, certainly, it depends on their preferences as well. Um, I'd like to see a minimum of six months uh, up to a year. And then at that point, they may st- continue to breastfeed but start to incorporate some solid foods.
0: What can you do for a baby with cradle cap?
1: Cradle cap um, is a uh, hyperactive uh, uh, sebaceous gland on that child's head, and often you'll see a hyperactive glands along the side of the nose, their eyebrows, um, <clears throat> behind the ears, and you know it's an early sign to me. It's an early sign that they probably have some atopic issues going on. So some you know sensitivities going on. It might be because they don't have a strong microbiome, so they should be on probiotics. It might also be that they have you know. Um, are sensitive to something that the mom is eating or that they themselves are eating. Um, and so typically I would be looking very much into those aspects as far as what the mom can do topically. You can take, uh, olive oil and mix a few drops of rosemary essential oil into it and slather it onto the child's head. Put a cap onto the child's head and allow it to stay there overnight. And then take a dry loofah in the morning or a rough rough washcloth, dry washcloth, and kind of take that off. Or some moms will just do it with their fingernail. And it usually means that you have to do it several times. Now, the big thing is, is whether it comes back. You can have some, a child have old cr- cradle cap that stays on their head and doesn't go away because it's so sticky and glue-like, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're getting new lesions of that, and that's an important thing to be able to look and see. So if you've removed it and it comes back, then it tells you there's something internally going on. If you remove it and it's gone, it may well just been the phase that the child has. And what can
0: you do for a fever in a baby?
1: Oh, that's a really big, long question. <laughs> and the sense that in a fever, and you know, are we talking about under six months, six months to 12 months? Because it really varies. And I think, you know, herbs have a lot to offer with fever. A child under six months, I think, you know, the mom may, should be having support. Uh, someone who doesn't know much about herbal medicine shouldn't be trying to manage their child alone in that sense. That Children, as they grow older, use fevers as a defense, and they're excellent forms of defense. And a lot of times we get upset about the fever itself and how high it is, but it's not, you know, really an issue. It's working as an immune defense. A child who's, you know, two years old and has a temperature of 102 and is still running around and asking for food is not sick from that fever. She's dealing with a very good um, fever that's being constructive. for a child who's at 99 temperature and listless on the couch, that child is not doing well. So many times, you you know, the, the high height of the temperature isn't always, you know, inducive of how sick the child is. But but using traditional herbs for managing fever, like peppermint and yarrow flowers and chamomile flowers, and and um. Catnip and elderflowers are, are, you know, have a long history of helping to you know, assist someone through their fever's time so that they can you know, not have it be, uh, what should we say, uh, um, negative to their body, but it can actually be assisting to their body and help their body get through an aspect. Because we get fever because we have infection. And so the fever helps to communicate to the rest of the immune system that it needs help. And what about for teething? Ah, teething is, you know, often accompanied by fever, and that's because as we, you know, inflame our gums and break through with our teeth, that's uh, allowing the outside world to get close to the inside of our body. So we use fever to modulate immune. It's an immune defense. It's like sending a guard along to make sure that nothing happens. Um, Using things like chamomile and elderflowers during teething can be very useful to help to deal with some of the symptoms that can come up with teething, such as drooling, such as sore mouth, such as diarrhea. And also using things like valerian uh, tincture just rubbed onto the gums can be very useful or a little kava tincture rubbed onto the gums directly can be very useful in helping the child to kind of take that away. And then lastly, traditionally, many children or moms will use a a peeled licorice stick that's very sweet, it's a little bit firm and that can be very useful and it's also very anti-inflammatory so it helps with the gum uh, inflammation.
0: And how do we know which herbs are safe for babies?
1: I would say go to my book. That, you know, this is where a person needs to go to a book. And so I wrote a book called The Encyclopedia of Natural Healing for Infants and Children. And it works with what I call the kids' materia medica. And so it talks about those plants that are ch- kid friendly. And there are several other herbalists and naturopathic doctors who have published on uh, kid-friendly herbs. But I think that's the first thing that a parent needs to do is to go get a book and be guided because there are herbs like black elderberry, like lemon balm, like chamomile, like echinacea that can be very useful, um, in helping children through childhood, you know, health challenges that come up for children on a regular basis.
0: And are there ways to make taking herbs more fun for children?
1: Yes, the you know, making popsicles using syrups or elixirs. Um, <clears throat> there's actually a licorice lollipop on the market that's used for dental caries and for um, you know mouth health in that sense. And for um, and so and right now, <clears throat> on the larger market, there are so many kid-friendly herbal products out compared to what there was 20 years ago. But I think you know, kids often walk away with you know a lingering taste and if it's sweet then that t- typically is something that will, you know, bring them back to that. So syrups and glycerates and, um, you know, more uh, gummies, those types of things are a little bit more attractive.
0: Okay. And is there a place where women can go to find a good midwife?
1: Um, there. Well, there's um, MANA, which is the Midwives of America, and I would certainly say start there that there's also, you know, um, naturopathic midwives and you can put in naturopathic midwives um, and you'll find them listed there. Okay.
0: And how can we find out more
1: about you? Well, a couple of places. You can uh, go to uh, GaiaHerbs.com, their website. I'm a medical educator there. I also help to formulate a a line of herbal products for kids that are kid-friendly. You can also go to... Uh, MaryBove.com, which is my website that I'm building. And as I said, I did publish a book which is available on Amazon on uh, kids for herbs. I mean, herbs for kids. And it has a lot of great recipes. It has guidance for preparation. It talks about common uh, types of challenges that come up for parents and you know, some creative ways to deliver herbs to kids who aren't, aren't you know, as compliant.
0: Okay, great. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Mary shared some great information with us today. If you'd like to find out more about her or purchase one of her products, I have all of the links on my show notes page at everydayherbals.com episode 5. I also want to thank all of you who have supported this show so far by subscribing or leaving an iTunes review or purchasing a product through my website. I couldn't do this show without you guys. Hope you have a great week, and I'll see you next Monday.